Hi. Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the, this evening's monthly members lecture at the Oriental Institute. My name is Wally Verdoren. I'm the director of development here at the OI. I first want to express, as always, a special word of thanks to our many members whose annual support makes um, this lecture series and so much other programming possible here at the OI, and not only possible, but open and free to anyone who wants to join us, either here in Breasted Hall or now uh, via live video stream on YouTube. Uh, welcome to all those who are joining us in that way. Um, if you aren't a member yet, consider becoming one. Uh, you can find information on OI membership and its many benefits on our website. Um, Christopher Woods, uh, the OI's director, who usually introduces our speakers, is actually out of the country, um, has been for the last few weeks on OI business, and fortunately, we have another esteemed OI scholar who will be making our formal speaker introductions this evening. And so I would like to call to the podium Dr. Theo Vandenhout, who is the Arthur and uh, Joanne Rasmus Rasmussen Professor of Hittite and Anatolian Languages, and the Executive Director of the Chicago Hittite Dictionary Project, and also a fellow Nederlander. So Theo, would you like to come to the podium? Thank you so much, Wally, for your very kind uh, introduction, and thank you all for uh, coming. Uh, it's an honor for me to be able to fill in for our director, Professor Christopher Woods, and an even greater honor to introduce tonight's speaker, Professor McGuire Gibson, whom we all know as Mac, who will speak on the OI excavations in Iraq. Um, the uh, OI, because as you know, we are celebrating our centennial, uh, thought it would be a good idea, and it, it is indeed, to uh, feature at our members' lectures this year uh, our own faculty. And who better to start with than uh, Professor Gibson? In cases such as these, you start with a CV if you have to introduce someone. So I wrote to Mac, uh, can you send me your CV? And he did very kindly, uh, but it came with a warning. It's, he said, it's pretty long. You might prefer a much shorter prose style bio. Uh, well, uh, that is not how we do things here at the OI. Um, so I delved into his full uh, CV, and that's where I got the following information. So uh, Mac got his PhD actually from this university in 1968. Um, then he went away for a while between 1968 and 1972. Uh, he went to, he worked at UIC uh, and at the University of Arizona at Tucson as an assistant professor of anthropology, which was uh, a surprise for me. Um, and then in 1972, he returned to UChicago where he then stayed for, well, he still is here, um, for uh, more than 45 years, and he retired at the beginning of this year in 2019. And in those more than 45 years, Mac, if I may call you that here, um, devoted his career to the archaeology of Mesopotamia. Um, and 
In that period, he sat on countless boards and committees within the university and outside. So, uh, for example, he is or was the president and founder and still is uh, trustee of the American Institute for Yemeni Studies. Um, in uh, <clears throat> between 1984 and 1988, he was the chair of the Council of American Overseas Research Centers and served three more years as the treasurer of that body. And, and these are just a few highlights that I picked out of there. And um, especially I noted from 1989 to 2014, he was the president of the American Association for Research in Baghdad, which during his tenure was renamed as the American Academic Research Institute in Iraq. And I can only imagine uh, how that period, I mean, which was such a period of upheaval in the inner politics of Iraq, how uh, hectic that must have been and must have been, and also how important. Mech spent, of course, uh, most of his archaeological work in Iraq. He was the director of the Oriental Institute expedition to Nippur from 1972 onwards until 2018. But he also worked at other Iraqi sites and also in Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and Syria. Besides his archaeological work, he initiated and led countless projects, he organized exhibits, he was the recipient of many grants, and I want to mention here especially uh, a very recent one in 2016. He was the uh, primary investigator, the PI, uh, for a very prestigious uh, project with our own University of Chicago Neubauer Collegium, uh, where he received a grant for a project on long-term environmental and social change in Mesopotamia. And beside all those activities, he still found time to author or edit uh, some 12 books and many, many articles. And his CV only gives a selection of those articles. But more importantly, maybe for tonight, is that I know Mech as a great and wonderful storyteller. I hope you have all seen the, the book that the OI published uh, because of our centennial entitled Discovering New Pasts, the OI at 100. It's for sale in the souk. Um, and he contributed to that volume a chapter on the OI involvement in Mesopotamia, co-authored with Gene Evans, the director of our museum, as you know, and Karen Wilson. And just one story from there, I, am hope, I hope I'm not stealing that from your lecture. Uh, one story in there I just want to uh, uh, repeat to you because I, I think it's a wonderful story. It's about Seton Lloyd and uh, Torkild Jacobsen who were on their way from one dig house to another, and now I quote, just as a sandstorm came in. They had gotten less than halfway as the curtain of sand and the coming dark made it difficult to see the track. So they decided to turn around and return, following their own tracks. But soon, in order to see their tracks, Jacobsen had to get out and walk in front of the car, using its lights to guide him. But finally, he told Lloyd that he couldn't see the track at all and was worried that they would become totally lost. 
He said they should just sleep in the car for the night and make it back the next morning. The next morning, as the sand had settled and all the dust, they woke up to find that they were parked no more than 10 feet away from the wall of the dig house that they were trying to reach. <laughs> they had followed the tracks to where the car had been parked the day before. So I hope you will now join me in welcoming Professor McGuire Gibson. Uh, a boy was once given a, uh, a task to uh, turn in a book report on some book that he had read. And uh, he read Moby Dick. And his book report starts, this book tells me far more than I want to know about Moby Dick. <laughs> I'm going to be covering a lot of time and a lot of territory. And I hope that I'm not going to be telling you more about Nippur and such things than you need to know, but we'll try. Okay, we're in the Fertile Crescent, which was a term which was coined by Breasted, who's there in that, photo, in that painting. And we're in the eastern end of it, we're gonna be talking about ancient Mesopotamia, and mostly we're gonna be talking about the south, with one, a little bit going on in the north. It works, okay. Uh, I'm gonna be talking mostly about Nippur, but I'll also do a little bit on, uh, on uh, the Dialysites, which are up there on the, in the middle of the, uh, the map, and also Korsabad, where the Oriental Institute has worked. Nippur, which is going to be mainly what I talk about, was the first Mesopotamian site dug by Americans. The University of Pennsylvania worked there from 1889 to 1900, and it was led initially by John Peters. He had looked at what was going on. The Germans were working, the, the French had been working in Mesopotamia for some years and were bringing back marvelous things to the Louvre. And so he sent out a letter to all the cuneiform scholars and other people interested in Mesopotamia at about 1888, and saying, you know, they're ahead of us, we should really do something, the Americans should get involved. And so they sent out a little expedition. It turned out that Peters then led the expedition beginning in 1889 for the University of Pennsylvania. I mean, they worked there for about 10 years. He got the permission from this guy named Hamdi Bey, who was the Ottoman director of antiquities. Hermann Hilprecht, who was a cuneiformist from the University of Pennsylvania, was on the dig that year. He and, and Peters became great enemies, and there was a major ruckus between them over the next 10 years or so. The actual digging at the site was done mainly by John Henry Haynes, And in the very first season, they made a tremendous, two tremendous mistakes. One, they decided to pitch their camp at the very top of the mound. This mound of Nippur is about almost a mile long, and it's about 60 to 80 feet high in places. And they pitched their, their tents and their reed houses up on the top of that mound, and they just caught all the worst wind you can imagine through the winter that they were there, and they almost froze to death. They also dug a lot of ragged holes and tunnels across the site, but they found lots and lots of things. The second season, they set up a camp down on the, on the flat where they were out of the wind. And then finally, they built a house, 
which was surrounded by a little camp of people who worked for them, the local Arabs. And that house was still standing up to the second floor, although the roofs had been taken off, when the University of Chicago sent out a group led by Breasted to look at sites all across the Middle East and decide where they were going to dig. And they went and looked at Nippur. They didn't think much of it, and so they didn't know what they were going to dig, but they, they, they took a look at a lot of sites. The Nippur ziggurat uh, has on top of it a building that people think is a temple, but in fact, it's a house that was built with ancient bricks, ancient baked bricks by Mr. Haynes, because uh, it, he didn't want to have to walk all the way back to the house, and uh, he was getting more and more worried about what was going on. He was there for a whole year once, the only non-Arab, the only non-Turk on the site, and he was going slightly strange. Mr. Haynes, as a matter of fact, ended up his life in an insane asylum in New Jersey. Nippur can do that too. <laughs> now, as I said, the site is enormous, and this is a plaster cast that used to be in the Penn Museum showing the uh, various sorts of trenches and holes that they made at the site, and it, it represents only the major things they did because they, in fact, put trenches and tunnels all over the site. Uh, the three, the uh, four arrows are pointing to the main places they worked on. The little one, with, uh, the, the shorter of those four lines is what they call Tablet Hill because they found lots and lots of tablets. As a matter of fact, the other line that goes down to the south there goes, goes over to the, to the other mound. That's got just as many tablets coming out of it and that's an even deeper hole, huge holes. The, uh, the expedition did work with about 400 workmen and they moved a lot of dirt. It's, it's sort of Cecil B. DeMille uh, in, in, in aspect. And a lot of what they've done, a lot of what they've left in this picture makes no sense whatever. That, that stairway is not a real stairway. It's a, it's a stairway you cut in, order to, in the dirt in order to be able to go up and down. That wriggly thing that goes out to the right of that, it's, it's a drain from a particular period. They thought it was so nice, they just left it in place, and they, they just left it in, uh, with the dirt under it. But it, it makes no sense whatever. They weren't very good at what they were doing. They didn't have the skill to do, do this. Haynes was assisted one season by a man named Clarence Fisher, who's a better archaeologist and, in fact, a fairly good architect. And he later dug for, for the Oriental Institute at Megiddo in what was then Palestine. Uh, this is, uh, gives you an idea of what they did. The ziggurat actually stops. The oh, I'm on the wrong thing. There we go. That is the, the stairway leading up to the top of the ziggurat, and it actually stops about halfway, right there where the arrow is. That's the bottom of the, of the ziggurat. All of that is earlier material. And uh, the, most of what is up here, what, what do we do? Did that do it? Yeah. What's up here, a lot of that is part of a huge Parthian fortress, Parthian being roughly Roman period. And so what happens is in the Parthian period, they come and they use the ziggurat as the center of a big fortification. Now, Penn found a lot of stuff, but they don't, they, it's not very clear in many cases where it came from. Their main contribution is about 40,000 cuneiform tablets, which are extremely important, uh, for instance, because there are a lot of bilingual Sumerian and Akkadian texts, which helps to, to decipher Sumerian. It also has, at that time, 
was the main source we had of certain dynasties, for instance, the Kassite dynasty, which is better known here than in any place else, and uh, just material from all periods because since it was a religious site, kings would come there to be recognized as kings and they would leave uh, lots and lots of gifts, leaving their name and saying when they had done it and why they had done it. Now, Penn stopped digging there at about 1900. At about that time, John D. Rockefeller gave a lot of money and founded the University of Chicago. He, he recruited William Rainey Harper, who was 35 years old at the time, to become the first president of the university. If you look at some of the old uh, white city, the, the, uh, the, uh, the world's ex ex exhibition, the Columbian exhibition of that period, you see in the background they're building the University of Chicago sort of out near the midway, beyond the midway. And they were building the university at that time. And immediately he, he hired on uh, his brother, Robert Francis Harper, who, who, to do cuneiform, and he hired James Henry Breasted to do Egyptology. They founded a museum called the Haskell Oriental Museum. If you go there today, you can see on the side it says Lux Ex Oriente, a light from the east, and they had a collection of artifacts. Uh, in 1903-1905, they sponsored a dig at a place called, uh, called Adab, or modern Bismaya, in southern Iraq, and they hired this man, Edgar J. Banks, Edgar James Banks, to do the digging. You'll notice that he's all dressed up in Arab garb. There's, you're going to see a lot of clothing changes going on in these pictures. Uh, if you go through the museum here, you will see several things from the, this uh, dig, including the head of the king. Actually, I think the, the head of the king may be on loan someplace. But he, he left a, a dig house there built out of ancient baked bricks. Now, 1919, Breasted founds the Oriental Institute with a gift from John D. Rockefeller, Jr. The way that happened was that Mrs. Rockefeller used to read breasted books to her sons, uh, and she became very, very fond of breasted. They asked breasted at one point to take them on a tour of Egypt. They went up, they went up the Nile, they came down the Nile, and it ended up with his giving a gift to found the institute. Breasted was a great genius, and he was a man of great vision. Uh, he took a group right after the war stopped in the First World War. He took a group to the Near East to look not only at sites in Egypt, but all across the Middle East, including Nippur. After a few years, in the 20s, they had teams working in Egypt, well, before that even, at the Chicago House. They worked in Turkey at Alishar, in Syria, the Amuk Valley, around Antioch, in Palestine at Megiddo, in Iran, Persepolis, and the area around it, and Iraq at two sites, Khorsabad in the Assyrian area, and the Diyala region, which is just to the east of Baghdad. Everywhere they built dig houses to signal that it was a long-term commitment, but little was known in detail about the archaeology in any of these places. They had almost no notion, really, of what the pottery looked like, what the artwork looked like, how it changed through time, what, what was significant for what period. That was the state of, 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 of the field at the time. One of the main research aims laid out was to establish the chronology and the history of each of these areas, digging stratigraphically, meaning coming down, realizing that what's down here is earlier than what's up here, and combining this data from archaeology with art style changes and the written documents, along with the available science at the time. By the way, the idea of stratigraphy, things being up, you know, the oldest stuff being down. We were down at a deep hole once at Nippur, 
and working away. And we heard these voices. We look up and they're tourists, uh, English tourists around the edge of the hole. And one woman, you know, they asked us several questions. One woman said, why did they live underground? <laughs> and I explained to them that, you know, this, this, this site was basically built with mud brick, adobe, unbaked brick that when your house gets old enough and starting to have problems, you take the roof off, you reuse it because you're gonna reuse the timbers of the roof, you knock the walls down inside themselves and you build on top of that and you build on top of that. And after a little bit of time, you get a mound. And some, if you stay in one place long enough, you get a very big mound. Right. Anyway, at that time, in the 30s, with, with, with all this money from, from the, from, uh, in the 20s and 30s, with all this money available, and especially when the depression hit, and the Institute had money and very few other places did. Breasted was able to buy the finest archeologists, the finest architects, art historians, and ancient language scholars to stock that institute. And with many of these field crews, the architects especially and, and some of the others, they would go from place to place. They'd go from Syria and then they'd go to Iraq and then they'd go to Turkey and they'd go, you know, bouncing around, go to Iran as they were needed. You know, they were professional, they were professional diggers at that point. Now, one of the, fir the first place that we dug in Iraq was Khorsabad, ancient Dur Shirokin, which was excavated under Gordon Loud. Uh, Frankfurt, Henry Frankfurt was also there for a while, but basically it was done by Loud. And they found phenomenal stuff, like the, a wall painting of which had fallen down and they were able to reconstruct what it looked like. Uh, and it, it was, that's the scale and that's, what it, that, that's pretty much what it looked like. Also, they... Uh, they were in this site which had been dug already more in about 1840s by the French. And so in many cases, what they were doing is redigging what the French had dug. And they took, this is our Chicago bull and the, the hero with the lion. And that, that's the parade of people that you see uh, in our hall. Now, one of the amazing things was they took this stuff into the dig house in pieces. Because the bull, for instance, was in pieces. When they got it together inside, or they put it in crates, they, it was too big to come out again through the, through the door. So they had to take it over the roof. They hired a guy named P, Pinhas de Lugas, who was an engineer trained in France, to do this job. And they were, if you look in the hall, you'll see the story of how they got these huge pieces of stuff onto a, to this river and how they were put on a boat, which was really not equipped to take them, and they got them home to Chicago and then they reconstructed them inside the, the, uh, the building. Now Frankfurt decided, Frankfurt was a very, very great scholar, another genius. He had uh, he'd been working at Amarna in Egypt and breasted, visited, was very much impressed with him and hired him. And Frankfurt said, yes, I'll do it, but you should also hire this guy, this architect, this Englishman named Seton Lloyd. And that was a very, very fine hire. Anyway, he went out to, to, uh, to Iraq to look for sites in, in antiquities dealers' offices. In those days, you could buy and sell antiquities in Iraq. They was, he was seeing statues and he was seeing other kinds of things, art history, uh, things which are art historical, that really fascinating him. He, and he wanted, because he was essentially an art historian. And this would allow the writing of the history of art in early Mesopotamia. So he found out that these statues were coming from a place called the Diala region, four sites in the Diala region. He chose Tel Asmar, Tel Ajrab, Khafaji, and Ischali. 
And it was, by the way, going back from his Charlie to Asmar. On the weekends, they, the, the people who were at the different sites would get in the car and go back to Tel Asmar for the weekend and would spend the uh, Thursday night, Friday, and maybe part of Saturday, before, and then go back to the, to the other sites. That's the story with Jakobsen and, and, uh, and uh, Seton Lloyd in the, in the sandstorm. Tel Asmar is a very, very large site, and it was being very badly dug by uh, local people, and so they began to, to, to dig, and they were finding fantastic things. They dug a whole group of, of temples and palaces and houses at the site. They lived in a rather elaborate dig house, which they built, and in those days, you could build that for, say, something like $4,000. And uh, by the way, I built a 20-room house in Syria a few years ago, and it cost us $20,000, which wasn't bad. Okay, and they live, they, you know, they live fairly well. It's, 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 uh, it looks posh compared to some dig houses, but it's you know, very comfortable. If you're going to be out there nine months a year, which they were, you want to be comfortable. Right, these are the main characters on the dig. Delugas, wearing a pith helmet. Jakobsen, wearing shorts, but a tie. Notice he's got a tie on. <laughs> Breasted is visiting, so of course he's going to have a tie. Frankfurt is, is, has a tie. And the entire dig crew is brilliantly laid. I'm, I'm sorry, this is not as good a, a image of that. This is a brilliant piece of work. This was done by Rachel Levy, the woman on the left. She was the artist for the dig. She, she composed this. There's a much better photograph, there's a much better picture of this in that centennial book, which is on sale outside. All right, the, the Mary Chubb was the woman who did the, uh, the records in the catalog. Seton Lloyd, you, that's a brilliant, it, if you knew these people, it's a brilliant. Uh, depiction of Seton Lloyd. He was a tall, thin guy, and he looks just like that. The next guy is the Baron zu Elst. I know not much about Reimer Jakobsen, who was married. She was a photographer. She was married to Torkel Jakobsen. There's Henry Frankfurt and his wife, Henrietta. They had two Salukis, one called Yasmin, and I've forgotten the name of the other one. The next one was Harold Hill, one of the architects. Then you get Jakobsen. He's, he is drinking beer out of a jar with a long straw. And again, it has captured him beautifully. Jakobsen was here in the Institute for years and years. Then you have Ham Darby, another one of the architects, and finally you have Delugas sitting at the end. And again, he, 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 she's depicted Delugas brilliantly. Okay, that was Telasmar. They also dug at Kafaji, and Kafaji is famous for this big temple oval. And that was a, a fantastic bit of digging. Essentially, Delugas dug this and reports on it. You can see the little dig house in the background, nowhere near as big as the one at Tel Asmar, but you know, it's, 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 it's sufficient. Now, what they did with these digs at these two sites, plus Tel Ajrav and Nishchali, is they were able to, it was improved digging techniques, better than most people. They really learned how to work with mud brick, which is, it can be difficult. And by digging stratigraphically, by saying this is here, this is here, this is here, and you know, we, we know this is earlier than that, they were able to lay out a, a big part of the stratigraphy from about 3200 to about 2000 BC based on the stratigraphy. Now, they didn't get it completely right all the time, but they got, you know, the basic thing is right. And they were able to, to lay in the artifacts that relate to one another. Very, very important. Frankfurt, the art historian, arranged cylinder seals by chronology, by stratigraphy and chronology. Uh, and if you go to look at their halls, you will see we've laid it out, and we're basically following what Frankfurt has done. And it's, it's a, it was a brilliant piece of work what he did. He also worked on the statues, and uh, you will see some of these statues in this, in this building. 
Uh, he worked on the Sumerian statues and wrote a two books about it. And the thing that, with the Diala is they set out to write about 11 books all told, and they got about seven of them done, and uh, one or two more have, are in process. Okay, Torkel Jakobsen. He's a very important guy. Expert cuneiform scholar, very good archaeologist, and the first person to do regional survey. In the Diala region, as early as 1933, he realized that if, if you, uh, although you couldn't see the ancient canals because they're buried by siltation, later, later silt, even though they don't show on the surface, if you visit the sites in an area and pick up the pottery and date the pottery, you would know the periods when a site was occupied. So it's, it's, it's you know, say it's at 3,000, 2,000, 1,000, you have settlement there. Then if you draw lines between the sites, like drawing you know, lines between dots, you can reconstruct the canal system through time. And that, that was a brilliant thing he did. Very shortly after that, by the way, uh, Braidwood in uh, Syria did his own survey and, and published a very important survey book on it about, about a year later. Okay, now what's very important is by 1936, even the Institute ran out of money. And so they had to stop work in Iraq. Frankfurt came back to Chicago and he taught a famous seminar in which students compiled the first good artifact sequences for Iran, Iraq, and Western Syria. At about the same time, 1937 or so, Iraq sent two students, Fuad Safar and Taha Bakr, who got MA degrees, didn't finish the PhDs because they had to leave when the Second World War started. These people, Taha Bakr, especially at the University of Baghdad, and Fuad Safar in the Department of Antiquities, became the key people making that work, setting up the study of ancient Mesopotamia in Iraq. Muhammad Ali Mustafa was an engineer he worked with them. He was also very important. He didn't get a chance to come out for a, for a degree. But this is Chicago's effect in another way. Now, because what happened during the war, although foreigners couldn't go work in Iraq because the war was on, Seton Lloyd stayed there as an advisor to the Department of Antiquities. And he, working with Fuad Safar and Muhammad Ali Mustafa, and sometimes with Taha Bakr, filled in the prehistoric sequence in Iraq, which was not covered by the Diala, and they did other very important digs in the historic period during the war. So they really, theirs was an incredible contribution during the war. After the war, 1948, the OI returned to Iraq. Braidwood began his groundbreaking interdisciplinary work on early agriculture and domestication of animals in 1948 in the north, Jarmo and the area around it, and by doing that, he set off an incredible explosion of uh, investigations of this, this agriculture and domestication all around the world. He's extraordinarily important. Working with him as a student was Robert McCormick Adams. Adams later, beginning in 1957, uh, going into 1975, did surveys in which he mapped over 4,000 sites in southern Iraq. Later on, he became OI director and was secretary of the Smithsonian. And this gives you an idea of what he was dealing with. This is part of Adams' survey showing some of the thousands of sites and many ancient canals and river courses he mapped in southern Iraq from 57 to 75. By the way, up there in the middle of that, there's a little site in red, UMH. That's Um al Hafriat. We might get a chance to talk about that later if we don't run out of time. And there is Adab, where the University of Chicago worked in 1903, 1905. So you see where it is in relation to Nippur. 
Students followed Adams' lead. I did a survey around Kish. Henry Wright did a survey around Ur and Eridu down in the south. But a major new talent arose when Tony Wilkinson began to work in Iraq in the 1980s. Using remote sensing, satellite imagery, he was able to do total landscape study. The Oriental Institute hired him in 1992, and it, it is one of the best hires the Institute ever made. He did numerous projects across the Middle East. He founded the Camel Lab upstairs and trained many students for 10 years here, and then went off to Edinburgh. Unfortunately, he died too early, and we lost him. Anyway, this is the, these are the two areas in Iraq where he did surveys, intensive walking, getting out and actually walking over the landscape, really understanding the landscape, and founding landscape archaeology in a very big way. And he trained the students. For instance, this, all these dots, all these red dots, these are sites which can be seen on satellite imagery. And this, uh, this plan, uh, this map was put together by Carrie Ritz, one of our students here, who was trained by Wilkinson. She got her PhD with me. And she put 4,000 sites on the map. She later put more than another 3,000 sites on. And there were other students who were working and put sites on the map up in Assyria. That rectangle you see is, uh, it shows no sites because uh, we don't have the information, but this was done by Abdul Amir Hamdani, who is a student of one of our students at Stony Brook, and he put 1,200 newly located sites in and around what had been former marshes. So that we go into other, other generations. Our students are teaching their students who are now getting out and teaching other students in universities all across the world at this point. Okay, the Oriental Institute also began digging at Nippur in 1948. Notice there are no ties here. No one's wearing it. Oh, no, that's not true. The guy on the, on the right who is Muhammad Ali Mustafa is wearing a tie. Okay, nobody else is wearing a tie. Everybody else is more casual. Nobody's wearing jodhpurs. Nobody's wearing shorts. But what you see is Carl Haynes on the left. He was the architect. McCown was the director. Haynes has his wife, who is the woman on the... Uh, sitting next to the child. That's her son, that's her daughter. They began to take their children out to the, to the area when they were three and four years old. They ran around the, 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 the village with uh, all the local kids. They went to the schools, they had a wonderful time, and nobody died, or nobody got even seriously sick. And that's uh, John Wilson, who was director at the time in the 50s, the third person in from the right on the back, and that's his wife uh, sitting on the right uh, in the front. Now. They began digging there because Dokil Jakobsen was a Sumerologist, and he wanted more Sumerian literary tablets like Pan had gotten. So they went to work once again at Nippur, and they found lots of tablets. But they were doing stratigraphic digging to expand the artifact chronology being done in the Diala, and the, the, the methods were better, and the uh, uh, the recording was better than it had been back in the 30s, and the 30s was better than it had been earlier than that. Than that. Here you have a picture uh, in, slightly later with Fuad Safar, who is coming down. He was the uh, representative from the government on the dig that year. There's Jakobsen. He's the epigrapher, the person who reads the tablets. Haynes is by now the director, and the guy in Asil was the director of antiquities. This is a nice photograph, I like this one. These are the Shigadi workmen. These are the guys who did the actual skilled picking, and these people could be geniuses. Their fathers had worked with the British and the French and the Germans 
earlier. Their grandfathers had worked with the Germans at Babylon and the Germans at Uruk and the Germans in, in Ashur. And so it became something these people in these villages up around Ashur did. And they would go all around the country and would work for dig after dig after dig. Now, 1948, this is what the site looked like. You can hardly see there is a site. I mean, you can see that there is a, there's the, the, the there's Tablet Hill right there, and there's the Ziggurat area, and over here is the West Mound, and this whole area of the West Mound, you, can, you can't really see it. It's covered with dunes. Between 1920 and 1948, this site is completely inundated by a dune belt. The dune belt stretches for another two or three hundred miles north, uh, northeast and it goes out to the east about another 30 or 40 miles it's in, and it goes south another 30 or 40 miles. It's, it's, it's a gigantic dune belt. Now they began to dig in Tablet Hills, trenches TA and TB, and they laid out a sequence of pottery which stayed pretty much standard for about 50 years and it supplements what was done in the Diyala because it goes later. But there's that curious thing here, uh, there, this, this line like that. See, pottery changes slowly through time. And it, you, know, you can go into another period, but the pottery continues. It, ten, you know, it comes into being, it gets populated, it goes out, out of fashion. Something else picks it up. And so this, you're looking at time going on, and you're looking at changes in pottery style. What goes on here? There's something funny here. Now, when I saw, I, I was a student here in the first classes I took. I went around the corner to where Donald Hansen was working. Donald Hansen was an archaeologist who was working for the Nippur project. And he, he prepared this, this chart. I said, Don, what's going on here? This is, this is something funny here. He said, Mac, frankly, I think they lost some pottery bags. They also lost some bags of pottery. Because he couldn't explain it any other way. Okay, but anyway, this pretended to be a pottery sequence unbroken from, from about at least 2400 to about 300 BC. And after they finished digging at, at Tablet Hill, they, they began to work on what became known as the Inanna Temple. This is, Inanna is the goddess of love and war. She becomes Ishtar in, in, in uh, later times, and she's, she's a very important lady. Uh, and this, they dug an enormous hole, and they went down layer by layer by layer. They got 19 levels, and there's temple built on top of temple, built on top of temple, built on top of temple. Working with Haynes at this point is Donald P. Hansen, who is a great archaeologist and a great ex ex excavator, and James Knudstad, who is an architect, also an excellent excavator. And because they learned themselves to do the digging, and they learned to do it very well, you don't depend as much on the Iraqi diggers. You, know, you, can, you can check their work. And they finished the Inanna Temple in 1962, and uh, what they had found was this. Now, this is not temple beside temple. This is temple on top of temple on top of temple, getting more elaborate as it comes along. Notice that there are two sanctuaries. The, the piece is in red. Two sanctuaries in this building. One is, is, a standard, is a standard sort of a temple sanctuary. The one over here, that's a standard one with, with, the temp, with the altar up here. You come in from the side and you face the altar. This one is a funny thing, which is, is a little forecourt and then a, a thing inside. And I suspect that that one on the left is a place where Enlil, the god, the chief god at Nippur, Enlil is supposed to have struck a pick into the ground 
and the first human comes out. And, I suspect, and he does this in, Inanna, in Inanna's temple, and I suspect this, this is what it, it does. Now, they found fantastic things in the Inanna temple. And this, uh, this uh, museum has some of them. It doesn't have this piece that stayed in Baghdad. This piece of calcite with a gold face is, is a spectacular piece. But there are other statues which you will find in the museum hall. They also found foundation statues. There's something I, in, in six or seven places there are uh, foundation deposits in which you get these statues. When they were digging this, and when they were digging earlier around the ziggurat, they had looked for foundation deposits at the ziggurat and hadn't found anything. They dug down and they couldn't find the foundation boxes. They knew they were there, but they, they didn't find them. When they began to, they, they, these were from the Ur III version of the temple. When they decided they were going to go below that temple, they demolished it and they started going down. As they demolished it, they found they were finding the foundation boxes with a statue in each box. There were about six of them. And at that point, they figured out why they had been missing the statues elsewhere, because they weren't directly in, they weren't exactly where they thought they would be. They thought they, oh, wait, I have to go to the next slide. They thought they would be sort of right there in the middle, in the middle, in the middle, in the middle. But in fact, they were a little bit off to the side. They weren't exactly in the middle. They were off to the side. So once they saw that, they found the first couple. And Carl Haynes turned to his chief pickman and said, shall we? And the Shigadi said, let's. So they took a couple of pickmen. They went over to in front of the ziggurat where they had looked in a doorway for the foundation deposits a couple of years earlier. They dug off to the side and they came up with two foundation deposits. We have one in the museum, statue of Urnamu. Now the statues that you see there, those are of Shulgi, who is the son of Urnamu. Urnamu was the founder of the Ur III dynasty around 2100. He is, Urnamu builds the ziggurat and uh, Shulgi builds the Inanna temple. Now notice that in the Inanna temple here, this, this one, this whole back part is destroyed by a huge pit coming down from the Parthian period. We, we assume that the sanctuaries would be here, we assume it would be two. And the reason we assume that is because there were two sanctuaries earlier. And if you look at this, this is the Parthian period, about 100 AD. The tradition that's alive in Mesopotamia is phenomenal. These things last well into, uh, until at least about 100 AD. And, you know, and the form of the temple stays pretty much the same. Now these are the two main sanctuaries. There's another little one down here, but that's not surprising. Very often there are subsidiary sanctuaries, but these are the two main sanctuaries. And so, you know, this is probably still carrying on that tradition of the, the main sanctuary and the side chapel. Now, at about the same time, 1962, just as they were uh, stopping at the Inanna Temple, they decided that they would dig at Abu Salabik. And this was being done by Donald Hanson and Robert Biggs. This site is about 12 kilometers north of Nippur. And they dug there in 1962 and again in 1964. The most important thing that came out of it was a, was a pile of early dynastic texts, very, very big things. Sometimes they could be 10 inches by 10 inches. And they took a lot of work to put back together. They were spectacular texts. And here you have Selma Aradi, who was our Iraqi representative, who became a very close friend. And Bob Biggs, working on the, to clean the tablets and get them ready for, for publication. Now, 
1964, well, what happened in 62 was the Oriental Institute decided it would stay at Nippur and that they would build an expedition house on the site. They'd been living in the village about eight kilometers away. They decided they would build an expedition house on the site. And so they voted and said, this will be our main expedition uh, in the Middle East at Nippur. So we make a long-term commitment. So in 1964-65, James Knutstadt, the architect, came back as director. He built the dig house and worked on the Parthian fortress that was built around Ziggurat. This was my first time there as a student. That uh, fortress had been excavated mostly already by Penn, as you'll see on that plan on the left. That's Penn's plan, done by Fisher. The aim was to remap it and remove the fortress and go down to the Urthri level of the Ziggurat. The, uh, and, the Anand, and the Andal temple. But then the antiquities officials decided they wanted to keep the, temples, uh, the fortress as a, temp, as a tourist attraction, so that stopped the work there. Now, because of the quitting of certain people and the not hiring of, 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 the, of people, Nippur was not worked on for five years, from 67 to 71. But Adams used the house as headquarters for his survey work. I was hired in 72 and resumed excavation. Mine was the 11th season. Turning to the West Mound for the first time since 1900. The idea was, we've had enough of religious buildings. Let's get the governmental buildings. Let's get private houses. Maybe we find something in the way of industrial or, or economic buildings. And also, I wanted to determine the artifacts of the Akkadian period and the Kassite period, which was still at that point very badly known. And also to investigate the ecological history of the area. I brought out with me geomorphologists and other natural scientists, people who work on animal bones, to look at the same sorts of questions that they'd been asked for the last 10 years or so, or more than 10 years, in prehistoric digs. Now, the, the blue lines, those are the places that Chicago worked before I got there. Tablet Hill, the Inanna Temple, and the Acor, <coughs> and the North Temple. The ones in red are the ones that I did. W A W B W C W E W you don't see D and E, they were tiny little things that didn't go anywhere. F and G. And also out here M, that's an Islamic site that we dug. In 1972, I, on the West Mound, I went into the big hole that Penn had left, saying, okay, they've taken away the Parthian, we can get down into the earlier periods that we're interested in. Notice the huge dunes. The dunes are still on the site. The dunes still cover much of the site at this point. They're beginning to dwindle a little bit, but they're there. And we removed some dunes, we went down, and of course, instead of finding an administrative building, we found yet another temple. In fact, it's another stack of temples. Every place you dig it, therefore, you're going to find a temple. This one, we proved quite a lot later, is to Gula, the goddess of medicine. This is the Kassite version you're looking at. And this was the 1990, the last season we were digging. Notice, by the way, we have to still fight the dune. You see it being cut back. Now, this is the kind of thing we were finding in that building. Here's a man holding his throat. There's another one with a guy with his head, uh, hand on his head and his hand on his stomach. They're, they're indicating why they're sick. And they're, these things are being probably brought outside and they're being brought into the temple and they're being given to the temple. We also found dogs, both in clay and in metal, in this building. And Gula's dog, Gula's uh, symbol is a dog, so it, it fits. And we also finally found an inscription that said Gula. Okay, now we also worked at Area WB in a place that looked undisturbed by Penn. I walked over there with Carl Haynes, who was out with me the first season, 
And we said, well, this looks like it hasn't been touched. We, we, cut it, we went down into it immediately. We're in a badly cut up palace of the Kassite period. Almost nothing, we, we can reconstruct the walls, but only the black stuff is what you're actually, is what's intact. The rest has been carved away. But we found enough little bits and pieces of the tablets we could tell these match with other tablets which have been found by Penn, and they are the Kassite governor's archive, we think, but they're administrative archive. Now, cutting down into this building, cutting down, oh, did I skip one? Let's skip back. Right there, cutting down into the building. We found a grave. And it, the grave is completely filled in around the outside with tablets. They're using the tablets as, as just fill. This turns out to be a governor's archive from about 750 BC. It's extremely valuable for writing the history of the early part of the, of the first millennium. And this was uh, published by Steve Cole, who was a student here. Now is at Northwestern. Underneath the, the Kassite Palace is an old Babylonian house and bakery. And we found tablets in which the guys are actually making bread for, for, for various institutions. Uh, this is occupied in the reigns of Hammurabi and his son, Samsiluna at around 1700. In the courtyard of this, uh, this house, we found 57 objects left on the floor, and it, even including tablets. It looks as if they just decided, let's, let's leave this, let's go on a picnic. They walked away, leaving the stuff on the floor. And it, there's clear it was abandoned. And this is the first uh, hint we had that there was something going on at around 1700. Uh, there was an abandonment going on. And right above it is the Kassite building. So you've got nothing in between that you can say that fills in the time between 1700 or 1600 and 1300 or 1400. In three other areas, we found the same situation. Kassite sitting directly on or a few centimeters above old Babylonian remains with no tablets later than Samsung Luna year 30. And if you look at the pottery coming out of there, in the old Babylonian, you look at this goblet shape. The old Babylonian, it's, it's sort of fat toward the bottom. And then you jump and you have a very skinny bottom on the rest of these. And we can date those to Kassite and those to OB. Why the big change? That takes you again to this, to this chart. What is happening is we've got a gap of at least 150, 200 years, maybe more, at the site. They abandon the site. They walk away from it. They come back later. They reoccupy it. And so you have, that's why you get that line. And before we did this work, nobody was thinking this was happening. Jim Armstrong, one of, one of the brilliant students we had here, did for a PhD the, this problem between the OB and the Cassite and later. And he noticed, though we all noticed, this is a published thing which was published way back in the 50s. You notice that there is a dump debris in one end of this, and the other end, it's sort of, there's sort of a funny break, and almost no, no buildings go below and go above. What you're looking at is that break in, in stratigraphy. What you're looking at is that gap that they didn't see. They didn't understand what they were looking at when they dug this back in, at Tablet Hill in the 40s and early 50s, but Jim Armstrong was able to, to, to put it all together. Armstrong also did a pit at the end of that of that uh, hole that was done by Chicago earlier, and was able to demonstrate that there is a there's an old Babylonian wall at the bottom, followed by a dune, followed by a Kassite wall, followed by another dune, followed by a seventh or eighth century wall at, on the top. So you're looking at not one but two gaps in the stratigraphy at the place. Hermann Gosch, who was a brilliant archaeologist working for the Belgians 
put together all of the information. He went and looked at all the dated tablets in the south of Iraq and found out that the last dated tablets in the far south, down here around Ur and Eridu, down in here, that you have got, uh, you've got uh, certain sites where the last dated tablet is in the reign, uh, late reign of Hammurabi or the very early reign of Samsuriduna, his son. And as you go further up the countryside, it gets a little later, a little later, until you get to Nippur. And when you get to Nippur, you're in the 30th year. And you go above that, and by the time you get to the later parts, the kings of the later dynasty, the only thing left of agricultural Babylonia is that yellow area. The rest of this has gone desert between, in, in, between the OB and the Kassite. Okay. Now, Part of what Gash was doing was based upon the work we'd been doing on environmental changes and environmental record. They were doing much the same kind of work up, up in their area. They were working up in the north, up in that yellow area. And we were able to put a lot of this together. And with a, with a lot of help from people like Tony Wilkinson, we began to make a really good environmental picture. Now, the things that we've done in Iraq in general, we've had a tradition of combining archaeology texts and the available science. And the science has become very, very complicated and very sophisticated at this point. We've been able to build long artifactual sequences from 3200 BC until 1400 AD at Nippur, and combining with what was done earlier at, uh, at other sites. We've done architectural and art historical changes through time. We've been able to get lots of literary and historical texts and to relate those to the archaeological work. Survey, landscape study, and ecological reconstruction have been extraordinarily important, especially in the last 20 years. And very important is training of generations of archaeologists and epigraphers, meaning the people who read the texts in this building, and the training that they do of their students whenever they, wherever they go. Now, we're almost out of time. I could stop there, but I'll go in a little bit. We also did a little other work. We did a little other work. In 1977, we dug at this site called Umal Hafriyat, a pottery-making site to the east of Nippur, about 30 kilometers away. The reason we worked there is Bob Adams, who was doing survey, we had just arrived and started to do the dig one year, 1973. Bob Adams came in from the survey and said, my God, I've just seen the biggest damned Acadian site I ever saw in my life. It's huge. And it's being dug on there. People are robbing it. So he left, and the next week we went out to the site with the, the driver who had been with Bob. And we went to the site, and it was clear it was being dug, and it was a lot of Acadian material. And it did look like it was a very large site. But we went there. In 1977, we finally got permission to go work there. I tried year after year, but the, we couldn't get permission. Then we went out. We bought tents. We, built, uh, we, we put, uh, put the tents up, we, uh, and, and we lived out there. The, the students hated it. I loved it. I thought it was wonderful. And what we found was it's not a huge site. It's a relatively small site, which moves. So that in the Akkadian period, it's a relative, it's a little town right there. And these are the pottery, these are pottery kills. This is where they're making pottery. These are the pottery kills that belong to this site. There are over 400 pottery kills, all told, on this site. They move from here over to here in the next period. They stay here for a couple of hundred years. Then they move, they move, they stay there for a bit, and, then, and they move to here and here. And finally, there's a little site here and a little site here of the cast site in Seleucid period. So it's a site that moves, but the, every single time that they move, they're still making pottery. So it's an industrial site. 
Now, in 1978-79, we worked up in the north near Baghdad, not very far from the, from the uh, Diyala sites, in a place in the Hamreen Valley, in a place called Uchtepe, where we worked with the Danes. There you see uh, our dig house. We, we rented a house from the local people in the village. There are Danes. There are three Danes on the left and two Americans on the right. That's Richard Zettler, who now works at, at Penn. And what we found at that site we, was uh, the main site was a round fortress building, pretty phenomenal. And the reconstruction you have on the left is by Peggy Sanders, who was our uh, who was our artist. Okay, that's it. Uh, we have done a lot of work in Iraq. We've had a lot of, uh, and we've had to work in between revolutions and coups and wars and various things. We, there are certain years in which we didn't know whether we would go, be able to work or not. Uh, what we found, though, was that the Iraqis, there were people who were willing to work for us to get us into work. And chief among those was Fuad Safar. Fuad always spoke up for us and spoke up for all the other foreign expeditions saying, no, they're not necessarily just spies. No, they're coming in to do work. No, you should really let them in. And, you know, we, and, you know, we took very seriously the situation we were in. And sometimes it was a little bit tricky. You didn't know quite what your reception would be at the airport when you came in, whether they'd be nice to you or not, whether they would give you a lot of trouble going through your baggage. You didn't know whether you would be followed around when you walked around in Baghdad. You didn't know what was going to happen. But, you know, we did it. And we were able to work there. I put in from the 11th to the 19th season. The 20th season was last year under Abbas Alizadeh. And I hope that the 21st and the 24th and the 32nd season at Nippur will happen. It's a great site. It has tremendous potential. And it is going to continue to be one of the great uh, important sources of information on ancient Mesopotamia. Thank you very much. Thank you.